Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Civil disobedience often precedes most social or political change. The American political tradition has deep roots in civil disobedience. The Boston Tea Party, the Underground Railroads of the Civil War period, the suffragist movement 20 years later, the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, and the Vietnam War protests are well-known examples. Symbolic destruction of the tools of war is an act of civil disobedience sometimes carried out by religious and faith-based war protesters. Susan Crane, once a Peace Corps volunteer and later a former school teacher in Ukiah, California, used a hammer to pound on a nuclear submarine in Maine and then poured blood on the submarine. As a result, she was sentenced to two years in federal prison. I met with her in the studios of Radio Curious at the end of February 1999, the day after she was released from prison. I asked her to tell us why she did what she did and why she was imprisoned. Well, last Ash Wednesday, a couple of years ago on Ash Wednesday, rather, I went with some of my friends, our Plowshares community. I went to Bath Iron Works with them. And we went on the uh, Arleigh, an Arleigh Burke destroyer, a guided missile destroyer called the USS The Sullivans. And we hammered on the war-making parts of the ship and poured our blood on it. Why? What, what motivated you to do that? We feel that it's a requirement of our faith to confront the institu institutions of injustice. We feel that uh, when we read scripture and it says, thou shalt not kill, or it says uh, that we should love our enemies, that that's what we're really supposed to do. We're supposed to love people and treat them as our brothers and sisters around the world. We're not supposed to go out and kill them or plan to kill them. And we're not supposed to be silent while that happens in our name. Tell me about this faith, its origin, its genesis. Well, I'm Christian, and um, Jesus was a Jew, right, who believed that uh, we're supposed to love our, our enemies. And in the Old Testament, there's... Uh, many choices that we're, we're taught to take, to choose life, to uh, beat swords into plowshares, as the prophet Isaiah had a vision about and teaches. So um, it's a faith that many people in this country hold. And the tenets of, are, are actually pretty simple. Well, by hammering on the ship, you were not going to create uh, plowshares. Uh, you, were, you were making a, uh, a symbolic gesture, uh, conducting a political act of civil disobedience that resulted in you being in jail for two years. Why two years? Well, you're right. By hammering on the ship, we didn't actually make a plowshare. We, we did symbolically begin a disarmament process. We began to convert our hearts and to convert the ship. And... We, when we went to trial, we uh, weren't allowed any affirmative defense. We weren't really allowed to defend ourselves in front of the jury. 
We weren't allowed to talk about international law or necessity or freedom of religion. And if we had been able to talk about those things, I feel certain that the jury might have acquitted us. But because the jury couldn't really hear any arguments, they uh, didn't have much to go on. In fact, they, the jury came back with, with uh, the question, can we consider the fairness of the trial? Because they realized that they didn't hear the full story. But of course, the judge basically said no, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict. So that was essentially a calculated risk that you knew you were taking before your acts of, of hammering on the ship? Well, we knew that, that we would probably go to court and that we might end up in prison, sure. And it's, it's very different um, from when probably 15 years ago uh, you were painting uh, shadows on the sidewalks of Ukiah, and I had the honor of representing you in the local courts. I remember from that trial, the judge allowed you to explain what would happen in Ukiah if an atomic bomb were dropped on the Mendocino County Courthouse. That's true. I remember that well. But even then, the jury convicted you. Yes, they did. And what that jury did, is, as I recall, uh, was write a statement about how they thought what you were doing was right, but the law said they had to convict you. Do you have any sense of how this last jury would have reacted if they had heard the issues of international law or freedom of religion? Well, I'd like to think they would have acquitted us because, in fact, uh, when you look at international law, building these nuclear weapons is illegal. We really shouldn't be building weapons of mass destruction. And we shouldn't be threatening people around the world. We shouldn't be killing people in Iraq. I'd like to think they would acquit us if we could actually put forward the arguments. But why two years? That seems like a long time. Is there a history prior to this? Was there a um, uh, supervised release or a probation that you were violating? Well, it's true that I was um, underground, so to speak, when I, when I went up to Bath Ironworks. I had gone into uh, Sunnyvale, uh, Mount Martin Lockheed, uh, Lockheed Martin at Sunnyvale with Father Steve Kelly, and we had hammered on the Trident missile that was being built there on the equipment section. And uh, for that Plowshares action, we had gone to prison for about 10 months, and I was on supervised release for that action. And do you feel that the judge, the sentencing judge, took that into consideration? Yes. What they, was they do take all, you know, they, they sentence you according to guidelines and, and all your past uh, witnesses contribute to what happens. By witnesses, you mean uh, actions as opposed to people come testifying for you? Yes, they call it criminal history, but I call it witness. Well, Susan, um, a former Peace Corps volunteer, a former teacher, uh, what was it that uh, changed in your thinking to um, take the actions that you did when the consequences uh, were perhaps uh, very extreme and present before you took your actions? 
when I'm when I was teaching here in Ukiah, I was trying to do what was good and truthful. I was trying to teach as well as I could and work at the uh, community dining room and do what was right. I was trying not to pay my taxes that went for war, trying to pay not to pay that section of tax that goes for war. And I was trying to be faithful to my to my spiritual beliefs. And meanwhile I saw the students were often homeless. I saw people without medical care. I saw that there were problems that were caused by what I believe is our national priorities, where we're taking half of every federal tax dollar and spending it on, mil on the military, on war making. And we're not spending that money on schools, we're not spending it on medical care, we're not spending it on shelter and education and jobs programs. So I was thinking, well, what, what's the right thing to do? If I had lived in Germany during World War II, what would it have been right for me to do? Should I just sit by while everything's going on around me? Or would I have wanted to be active? Would it have been reasonable to go to, to one of the concentration camps and, and hammer on the gas chambers? Well, it would have been right to do something. And here we are in this country, and I think it behooves all of us to, to act in some way to stop the war making of this country. You got out of prison yesterday. Yes. We're talking now. Now you have the, the freedom and the access to the radio waves and to people who uh, are not locked up. Um, but the time you were in prison, you didn't have that access. You were a listener on a uh, earphone type radio. What, what, uh, what do you feel that you were able to accomplish, if anything, uh, on the greater uh, vision that you've just described while you were in prison? Well, the two years that I was, was down was very, it was an interesting time. It gave me a chance to journey with the, all the women that were incarcerated and to share their lives, to, to understand what was going, to try to understand what was going on in, the, in our prisons. And uh, it's very interesting. You know, the, the, the prisons are one, it's a growth industry right now. And we're warehousing so many people in this country. We're not educating them. We're not really taking much care of them. They're just, people are just warehoused in these prisons. When you say a growth industry, uh, it's an employment industry for the people who build the prisons and for the people who work there. So are you saying it's a, a systematic way of creating a class of society or that's, dual classes? That's what it seems like. Tell us more. Well, the, um, the women in the prison, many of the women in the prison work in factories. In the prison? Yes. And they're producing things in these factories. And in the Dublin prison where I was, women produced chairs and curtains. And also they work on computers doing database work, data well, processing. Where do the chairs and the curtains uh, go? Well, the chairs and the curtains get sold to government agencies. The military for, for Navy ships, the curtains go for Navy ships. And, for any military base or any government office. And they get sold at regular prices. 
you know, regular commercial type prices. But the women get paid very little. They get paid maybe 23 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour, maybe a dollar an hour. And generally half of that money that the women get paid goes towards restitution to the government and the other half gets put in the commissary fund and people use it on high-priced commissary items. The price is higher than what you would find at an outside store? Well, they say the prices are pretty uh, comparable to what you'd find on the outside store, but of course they're not paying any tax on it. So sure. somebody's making money. Well, where does the other money go for the chairs and the curtains if they're sold at competitive prices? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know where that money goes. I think it goes into the factory. The Unicor factory is making money, I guess. Is that an outside-owned corporation, or is it a government-owned entity? Well, I've heard in the prison, I heard that you can even buy stock in it, but I don't really know. I haven't been able to research that inside. They don't tell you that? No, they don't tell you that. What were your living conditions like inside? Well, I'll talk about the living conditions. But really, I mean, I'm not in favor of prison reform. I'm in favor of getting rid of the prisons. So, Those are two big topics, Susan. And before you start them, I want to say that my guest this week is Susan Crane, who was released um, the end of February from two years in a federal prison for hammering on a um, U.S. Navy battleship. Uh, she did that as a way of expressing her faith that uh, the government should not uh, create and uh, use instruments of war. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The inside of the prison, Susan. The inside of the prison, people always say, looks like a community college. And in fact, there is grass and there are different buildings. But one of the fundamental differences is there's no education. People are just warehoused there. And the sad thing that I see as an educator is that women come there and they stay there 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and most of the women leave without any way to support themselves. They come in without a trade and they leave without a trade. And without any money. Without any money to speak of. They keep telling us to save our money for when we're released, but people, don't, people make very little there for the most part. What were the living conditions like? Dormitory, private cell, private room? What are the phrases? No, no such thing as a private room and a private cell. Most, most of the women are held, housed in a little room that's 12 by seven and a half feet with three people in a room. I was housed four people in a room. Those rooms were originally built for one person. And the prison itself is overcrowded. They keep putting more cots in, more beds in, more people in, but they don't enlarge the dining room or enlarge the medical services or they don't change anything. So there's just more people in a smaller space. What happens? Well, what what's, happens, the, what's the result of that? The result is that people don't get very good medical care and that the sewers back up. That was one thing that continually happened. Every, every three or four months, the sewers would back up in our unit, and there would be sewer water all over the floor. Big mess. And we really didn't have proper tools to clean it up. 
How long would it be there? Mm, a few hours a day, you know, depending. At times the water was turned off, and the first time that happened, the water got turned off so you couldn't flush your toilets. There was n no way to deal with bodily waste. And uh, I called out to my friends and said, well, this is what's happening. And, and uh, they said, well, that doesn't seem right. That's not acceptable. And they started uh, making a few calls. And the next time the water got turned off, we got porta potties. Called out to your friends. You mean your friends on the outside? Yes. Um, how are you able to do that? How are you able to make phone calls? Well, we get, uh, we have a chance to fill out a form and put phone numbers on it, and then these people that we request to call get mailed a letter saying that, that I want to call them up and is that okay? And then the number gets approved, and then if I have money on my commissary account, I can move it to my phone account and make a phone call. There's many women that, that really don't have any money to make phone calls. They don't call, call their families. Are there people who don't have families as well? Well, mo most of the women there have children, and most of the women there have families. But calls, you know, are expensive, and you have to have money. If you're making, say you're making $10 a month, and uh, you have to buy soap. There's a lot of things that you have to buy to just live. Like what? Soap? Well, they give you a little bit of laundry soap to wash your clothes, but it isn't enough to last the month at all. So you have to buy laundry soap. You have to buy, if you want, deodorant or, you know, all those sort of things that you're used to using. If you want to buy any coffee or you have to... Stamps, if you want to mail any letters, you have to buy stamps. What are the, what's the story uh, about having visits? Well, there were a thousand, over a thousand women in the prison. And very often on the visiting day, there would be uh, Thursday night, you might find 20 people, 20 women with visits. And on the weekends, there might be 30 women with visits. The women in the, in the federal prison are from all over the world and all over the U.S and most of them don't get visits. Most of the women there were foreign nationals. There were about 70% maybe Hispanic women. Why were they there? Well, for various things. A lot of people that I met, many women, were from uh, Mexico and just came into the country looking for a job and got deported and came back again and, and because of reentry, got put in prison. There were many women that had children and, and husbands in this country who were living here. The children were citizens. They were arrested for reentry because they wanted to be with their family. What was the reaction among the other prisoners uh, to the reasons why you were there? Most of the women were very supportive and very kind to me. And in fact, were respectful of all the political prisoners who were in the prison. And they understood about being faithful. They understood about not wanting to be violent and, and not wanting to uh, support a war-making government. Many of them didn't agree with me, but I think they understood.
they understood the idea that of that we're spending so much money on the weapons that we're not taking care of their children. Is there violence among the prison population? Is that an issue? There is occasional violence. You know, some one time while I was there, somebody put a lock in a sock and swung it around and hit someone else in the face. But I was there a year, and that was that only happened once that I know of. In uh, the prisons for men, there's a lot of uh, uh, talk uh, among the uh, inmates about sexual violence and sexual predators. Is that something that occurs in the women's prisons? Well, that's something that I didn't see at all. Um, I mean, women tend to, if they're going to have sex to, together, have it be consensual. So I didn't see any predatory behavior like that. This is a uh, low uh, custody uh, or low security prison. Was that, would that be a fair description or? Well, there's a double fence, a double perimeter fence around the prison and there's razor wire on it. It's a uh, sensitive, touch sensitive fence and there's always two, uh, two uh, pickup trucks moving around the outside perimeter. So uh, I really don't know. There were women that were high security, low security, and, and medium security. There. Mixed together. All mixed. With your experience as um, a teacher, were you allowed in any um, uh, prescribed way to teach classes or use your skills to teach other people? So you've mentioned that many of the people have uh, uh, a lower than average education. When I first got to the prison, I got hired to teach, and I really enjoyed that. I was teaching three GED classes that were each two hours. So I was teaching for six hours, and I had one hour a day for prep and grading papers, which wasn't enough time. And uh, I was really enjoying that. And you know when you're teaching, you try to uh, find the most interesting material to keep the attention of your right. class, just like when I was teaching here. And so I, I found this article, this letter, that Asada Shakur had written. Now, letters in prison, that's what everyone writes. They write letters home. So it's an interesting writing form. You know, it's something we're always looking at. Oh, letters. So Asada Shakur wrote a letter to Pope John Paul, and she talked about the prison system. She talked about the U.S. government, and she talked about her relationship to God and how it grew during prison. And it was a pretty short letter, and I thought, this will get everyone's attention. And indeed it did. The, uh, the women in the class were really interested in it because, you know, it talked about all the things they were interested in. And we were reading it and discussing it. It was a lively discussion. And the teacher, the staff teacher who worked for the Bureau of Prisons came in and was, was uh, not happy and in fact went out, got somebody else, they both came in and stopped the class and said that, that I shouldn't be using this material because I was encouraging antisocial behavior in the women because it was critical of the U.S. government and I was teaching, 
teaching uh, opinions as if they were facts. And I said, well, where is that? And they said, oh, you're saying this letter says that the, the uh, justice system is racist. And I said, well, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. But anyway, the next day, I wasn't the teacher anymore. They had hired somebody else. Was there anything you could do about that? Well, it was turned that? out that there, ha there was something I could do about it, but I didn't know that. No one told me until a week later when, when the original teacher who had hired me came back from training or vacation or wherever she had gone. She said, oh, you could have fought that. But anyway, I didn't fight it, and um, I went and got a job as gar a gardener, and I enjoyed that very much, too. What are your plans now that you're on the outside? Well, I'm planning to go back home to Jonah House. Where's that? In Maryland. We have a nonviolent community. We live in a cemetery at St. Peter's Cemetery in Baltimore. And uh, we pray together and reason together. We do work in the community. We hold retreats for college students. And uh, we have a one purse. So we try to live by gospel values. Well, Susan Crane, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask everybody at, this, at the end of an interview. And that is, can you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, you know, when you, when you mentioned that, the book that came to my mind first was the Bible. And, uh, you know, the Bible has a lot of really interesting stories in it about people who were civilly disobedient, who chose to follow God rather than the nation, who chose to follow their faith rather than Caesar. And uh, I, what came to my mind first was the Egyptian women, Shifra and Pua, who didn't do what the Pharaoh wanted, you know, who, who refused to kill the Hebrew children when they were born and who went up to the Pharaoh and said, we're not going to do that. And I like those stories. They give me strength. Well, Susan Crane, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Susan Crane, once a Peace Corps volunteer and later a school teacher, used a hammer to pound on a nuclear submarine in the state of Maine and then poured blood on it. As a result, she was sentenced to two years in federal prison. The book that she recommends is The Bible. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. 
I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.